from my heart and from my hand Why don't people understand my intention? do need to do a little bit of science, weird or otherwise. We were planning to take a look back at 2021 and comment on some of the people who have left us this past year, particularly if we never mentioned them earlier in the year when it happened. But I think instead I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket and talk about um, the death of a noted scientist who left us on the 26th. In this case, the biologist called Darwin's natural heir, E.O. Wilson. Edward O. Wilson was a leading authority on ants, whose study of the tiny insects led to some of the biggest, most provocative scientific ideas of the 20th century. Notably, that a biological basis to human behavior exists, and that preserving biodiversity is key to the planet's survival. Noted National Geographic, much of the modern environmental movement owes its scientific underpinnings to E.O. Wilson. Thomas Lovejoy, the late ecologist who coined the term biological diversity, said he played the most important role in elevating biodiversity in the public consciousness. One of his most important contributions came in 1967 with the publication of The Theory of Island Biogeography, which he developed with Robert MacArthur, a biologist at Princeton. Wilson did most of his work at Harvard. It linked an island's size to the number of species it supported. Although it initially focused on land surrounded by water, yeah, hello, an island, the concept became a cornerstone of conservation biology when applied to mainland habitat islands or reserves which were threatened by agricultural and urban development. Later, Wilson and mathematician William Bosert, a Harvard colleague, helped unlock the secrets of ant communication describing their secretion of chemical signals known as pheromones. And wouldn't you know it, microorganisms, plants, and most animals use such scent signals to relay information. In the 1970s, Wilson's study of social ants, bees, wasps, and termites led, to him, led him to create the field of sociobiology, which shattered the then popular dogma that babies are born with their minds a blank slate to be formed by nature and learning alone. In the insect societies, and more fully in sociobiology, the new synthesis, he insisted that genetic traits influence intelligence and play a role in both animal and human behavior, including aggression. Scientists on the left, sadly, including Wilson's Harvard colleague Stephen Jay Gould, often a first-class scientist himself, attacked Wilson's ideas, flinging charges of racism and sexism. Peter Raven, a leading botanist and conservationist, and the longtime director of the Missouri Botanical Garden in St. Louis, worked with Wilson for decades and said Ed was attacked very viciously, but he was right, noting that what Wilson said was radical to people who wanted to believe otherwise. I've read some of E.O. Wilson, and i got to say, he was a great writer. I also saw him speak publicly in Sacramento or Davis, I don't exactly remember which, and he was also very good as a public speaker. E.O. Wilson won more than 100 awards, including the National Medal of Science. And to his credit, he was never above taking a fresh look at his conclusions and revising them as necessary. 
He had originally proposed an idea of kin selection or altruism for one's own relatives, and he developed that further in favor of natural selection that favors groups. It should be noted that until the end, he maintained an optimism for a better future. In a, in a 2019 interview in National Geographic, the then 90-year-old Wilson articulated his biggest dream, quote, that somehow we have as a value, a human value, that we not destroy, but we protect and study and understand and love the environment that was our birthplace. I believe that we're on the edge of a new era in which value is extended to saving the rest of nature, knowing it, preserving it, and studying it, understanding it, cherishing it, and holding on until we know what the hell we're doing. E.O. Wilson, a great scientist, we salute him. Looking back at Wilson, it's, 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 it's important to note that Science changes and evolves, and, and a good scientist will challenge his own ideas and move on and develop things further. What amazes me in a half century of studying biology, as I guess I can say I have, uh, is how much we continue to learn and what surprises keep jumping out at us. Case in point from a recent Discover magazine under the headline, More Than Meets the Fungi, the piece notes that a series of discoveries have upended long-held beliefs about fungus and shed some light on carbon sequestration in nature. Article by Nancy Everett, no relation, Aww. notes that scientists are just now beginning to grasp the role that fungi play in carbon sequestration, thanks in part to a couple of breakthrough studies last year. Researchers knew that 300 million years ago, White rot fungi evolved the unique ability to digest lignin. Lignin is the natural tough polymer in the cell walls of trees, which makes them rigid and woody. You should note, dear listener, that this fungal super skill of digestion ended the Carboniferous period. It decomposed woody debris that would have fossilized into coal. And I want to pause right there to note that if you go back... In, uh, in geological eras, that time when the earth was laying down coal, coal seams and oil, which, of course, we're burning and using now to create lots of CO2 and run the world. You need to ask yourself, if you never have before, why it was that all that carbon built up. And the reason scientists think that all that carbon built up was that, you know, there wasn't enough fungi and other things to break it down. I remember reading estimates back in my college days that there were forests built upon forests and greenery built upon greenery that would extend a thousand feet in depth. And if you are going to take a bunch of green material and compress it down in geological strata to make a coal seam, you're going to, you're going to need a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of people like to think that, you know, coal and oil are recycled dinosaurs. Well, eh, no, not really. In fact, the brutal reality is if you look back in time, the Carboniferous period comes before the dinosaurs. And if you think about it, it's rather revolutionary to imagine that fungi came along and stopped the party. And scientists looking at it now wonder, well, what happens when, you know, when, 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 when carbon is broken down, plant carbon is broken down by fungi? It was assumed that this lignin might just evaporate into the atmosphere. But a microbiologist at the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado, named Davinia Salvatoria Rodriguez, studied this for 10 years and demonstrated that the fungi eats the carbon in the lignin to fuel its growth. 
which kind of marks the white rot fungus as a key player in sequestering lignin-derived carbon back into the soil. And furthermore, a study done at Stanford on parasitic fungi that live on tiny algae in the oceans are also able to remove some of the carbon from inside the algae, which might otherwise go back into the atmosphere. We're still figuring this out. And frankly, not a minute too soon. And in another article, in this case one from New Scientist, it is noted that fungi are the key ingredient. Well, maybe not the key ingredient, but one of the key ingredients in cheese making. Article by Allison George in the magazine starts out by noting when it comes to finding new and exotic species, there's no need to travel to the rainforest or trawl the deep oceans. Just open your fridge. The cheeses in there contain a wealth of surprises if you look closely enough. She notes that although cheese production began at least 7,000 years ago, we're only just beginning to understand what is really going on in the complex ecosystem that is cheese. In fact, new work on the cheese microbiome is revealing a riot behind the rind with complex interactions between a diverse array of bacteria, molds, and yeasts which help create the characteristic flavors and textures that we love so much. Notes the piece. Here's a tour of some of the surprises hidden in your cheese board. Cheeses are dominated by bacteria that digest the main sugar in milk, which is lactose, and turn it into an acid. They are also home to a menagerie of other microbes that develop as cheese matures, and exactly how many organisms cheese contains is only just being revealed. And yes, they've had to go to gene sequencing technologies, which keep finding new bacteria, some of which are previously unknown to science. Here's a quote you have to like. A 2020 analysis of four different cheddars, for example, found they were home to 159 different strains, only 16 of which were common to all. One surprise, how many bacteria found in cheese originate from the oceans? Said a researcher, we find them again and again. We had no idea, really, that what they were doing to affect the flavor of cheeses, and we didn't know how they were getting into the cheese. The presumption was they catch a ride in the brine the cheese is washed in. So, yes, you need milk. You need the, the good stuff that's in milk. You need to have some bacteria work on it. And then you need to add mold. Eating mold may not be your idea of, of fine dining, but when it comes to cheese, it's the prized ingredient. The most famous molds are Penicillium roquefort, responsible for the blue veins in Roquefort and Stilton, and Penicillium camemberti, which creates the fuzzy white rind of camembert and brie. Two recent studies by researchers in France revealed how these fungi have been domesticated from a wild variety in the same way that humans bred dogs from wolves by selecting favorable characteristics. And they're even to tell through genetic studies that... Uh, Penicillium roqueforti has been domesticated twice, as has been Penicillium camberti, which is probably more than you need to know. But what, something you may be intrigued to know is that the cheese on your plate is a den of genetic thievery. In the thousands of years since cheeses were first created, the microbes that make them have been rampantly swapping genes as they evolved to survive in this new environment. One study noted that the genomes of 165 species of bacteria associated with cheese found 80% had acquired genes directly from other bacteria through a process called horizontal gene transfer. Many of these genes were involved with scavenging iron, a rare commodity in cheese. And yeah, bacteria are important, but what's described as the top dog 
of the cheese microbiome are fungi. They took a look at communities where the bacteria and fungi are both living together and note that the fungi really seem to be the drivers of the interaction. Yeah, I guess they're just so bossy. Anyway, it's a complex jungle, jungle out there. I mean, who hasn't, you know, gotten irked when the strawberries in the refrigerator develop mold? I mean, you hate to throw away a good strawberry but when it's moldy, but, uh, you know, if you take cheese protein, you know, but if you take uh, milk protein and work on it a while with bacteria and mold, you get cheese. So please, whatever biases you may harbor against mold, please try to work on them. And not just mold, but yeasts and other forms of bacteria. They are your friends. Be a hell of a world without yeasts. No wine. No beer. No leavened bread. Which, you know, which means, you know, no pizza dough. No brioche. No English muffins. No croissants. It'd be a terrible thing. I, although I do want to add editorially, if we did get rid of sourdough, French bread, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. And speaking of complex substances we don't fully understand, there was an article in New Scientist about ambergris that I thought was uh, of some interest. I've often heard ambergris described as whale vomit, but apparently that's, that's not the real story. The article describes it as weathered whale excrement. Extremely rare, but can be found on beaches in many parts of the world. It is unprepossessing, dusty gray or brown, with the faintest whiff of earth or sea. Well... That's if it's not fresh ambergris. Yeah, what you want is, is the weathered old ambergris because the fresh stuff reeks of feces and naturally is described as having much less value than ambergris matured by a long soak in the sea. That latter form is known as jetsam ambergris. It's composed chiefly of ambrine, an organic chemical, which is capable of stabilizing volatile scents, which, is, which makes it so sought after by perfumers. This article talks about how modern technology can, can, can look at some of the DNA that's encased in ambergris and, and solve some puzzles um, about what's been going on in the environment. Evidently, some of this stuff's been floating around for a thousand years in the ocean. And uh, apparently, it, it definitely comes from sperm whales only. And apparently, it is formed in their colons only. And to make a long story short, we're just not quite sure why it forms in the first place. One part of the article that I sort of thought was kind of dumb was the fact that they mentioned they can take DNA, uh, apparently from ambergris, and then combine it with analysis of DNA from walrus bones, use, compare that to historical and archaeological information to explore why walruses disappeared from medieval Iceland. And, and what, they, what, what was revealed, surprise, surprise, was that a genetically unique population which was in Iceland, appeared to have been hunted to oblivion by Norse settlers during the 11th and 12th centuries. Hmm, let's see. Norsemen show up in Iceland, hunt walruses, walrus population declines and disappears. Did we really need DNA analysis to figure this out? It's just we're getting a little bit silly in our look at science. Let's get, let's get sillier yet. Yours truly cannot fail to be amused by a headline like this one. Space cow, in parentheses, explosion was probably a failed supernova. For all of you out there who are wondering, you know, what's the deal with that space cow explosion? It's nice to know we're closing in on an answer, isn't it? Actually, as I read the piece, I, I'm not sure that closing in on an answer is, is an appropriate expression. To quote from the article by Leah Crane, an explosion that baffled astronomers in 2018 may 
finally have an explanation. Observation of X-rays from the blast have revealed that it was probably a massive star that only partially blew up, leaving behind either a dense neutron star or a small black hole. Something we have long suspected happens, but never have seen until now. When astronomers spotted AT2018COW, nicknamed the cow because of the chance order of letters in its official designation, it took only days to reach peak brightness. Most supernova take weeks or months to reach their peaks. It was also 100 times brighter than typical supernova, which all this was difficult to explain. But I don't know, when you start using words like may and probably, you can, you can stretch things quite a bit. Anyway, I don't have a lot of faith in this article, but it is talking about how the cow was relatively nearby. It was only 195 million light years away. And they were able to use X-ray oscillations to determine how big it was because I guess the, the bigger uh, the speed of oscillations is proportional to its size. They figured out that the, the object at the center of the cow must be no more than 1,300 kilometers across. Heck, that's what, the size of California? Anyway, they're currently arguing whether it was a black hole or a neutron star. And, and you know, frankly, they, they can keep arguing. I'm, I'm, I'm not emotionally involved. And, and why in the article they describe it as 10 to 100 times brighter than a typical supernova, and then in the headline say it was probably a failed supernova, is something I'm just not going to resolve. And I can live with it. <sighs> And here's a bit of science reporting which I cannot resist talking about that is uh, is pretty disturbing. This also comes to us from the good people at New Scientist. Article by Claire Wilson notes that more than half of cancer biology lab findings cannot be replicated. Now, if you can't replicate findings, well, maybe they're not valid. The piece notes that a long investigation into the reliability of preclinical cancer biology research has found that fewer than half of the results published in 23 highly cited papers could be successfully reproduced. Apparently, the Center for Open Science in Virginia conducted the investigation. The original plan was to reproduce 193 experiments from 53 papers, but that was too many, so they reduced it to 50 experiments from 23 papers. They note that the 50 experiments included 112 potentially reproducible binary success or failure outcomes but they could reproduce the results of only 51 of these, or 46%. These papers got selected because they were all high-impact studies that had been read and heavily cited by researchers, and yet they could not reproduce them. This has been preceded by some other disturbing um, evidence along similar lines. Bayer and Amgen took a look at, uh, in, in 2012, at papers that they had relied upon, and found they could only reproduce 11% of the studies. It's a problem, folks. If you do a study and you come to conclusion A, and nobody else who tries to reproduce your results can come to conclusion A, well, conclusion A is now suspect. And a couple other items are of, of concern as we wrap up the show today. We would note that the world of influencers is getting looked at. A book review in New Scientist of a, of, a, of a book that's called Break the Internet in Pursuit of Influence by Olivia Yallop has the headline, Who Runs the World? with the subheadline, Don't Be Quick to Write Internet Superstars Off as Vacuous Kids. They are the future of politics, culture, and industry. To which we say, good God. In reading this piece, which, which did not seem to substantiate the, the headline, I, I'm not sure whether Break the Internet refers to the famous episode wherein K. 
Kim Kardashian claimed that the photo of her ass was going to break the internet. I don't think it's a coincidence. I guess the book notes that we should take this phenomenon seriously before it takes over our culture altogether. I don't know. The book does argue, apparently, that uh, you know we shouldn't shouldn't write off influencers as a, as a minor thing. And anyway, I guess the point of this book is that we should take this phenomenon seriously, and uh, and maybe we should I don't know before it's too late. As if the power of big tech wasn't scary enough, we have to now worry about where influences are going to take us. And, and, and this is worth worrying about because <laughs> apparently we now have to also worry about virtual influencers. We, yes, we now have virtual influencers, which are computer-generated characters who will plug products on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Evidently, the best known, although not to me, is Michaela Souza, or Little Michaela, a fictitious, a fictitious Brazilian-American 19-year-old with 3 million Instagram followers. With $15 billion expected to be spent on influence marketing in 2020, Virtual influencers are proliferating. We presume that none of them are going to be found falling off of Peloton bicycles, but you never know. Yeah, apparently Comique Universe, which is a marketing agency, has developed Aya Stellar, an interstellar traveler who's set to land on Earth in February. She's already released a song on YouTube. We can hardly wait. We do promise you that will never be part of our betting music. That just about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who likes to point out that he's done his fair share of virtual influencing, if you know what I mean. This has been Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We're going to see you again real soon, we hope. We'll be here. We hope you are, too.